you have your Bibles, would you take and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, just one chapter over from where we were last week. And this morning we're going to look at what is absolutely the most well-known passage of the book of 2 Chronicles so that we can hopefully be able to apply that properly in our lives, in our church, and in the context of the passage. So we're going to look at chapter 11 and we're going to read through verse 22. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 beginning in verse 11. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. That's the prayer we talked about last week. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside... And forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the people. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, the Bible fills us with life and the Bible calls us to reality. That there are heavy passages that deal with heavy subjects, namely our own sin. And honestly, God, we don't want to look at that. We don't want to face our sin. We don't want to look and check in our own house. We don't want to look and check in our own heart. We don't want to contemplate what it means to walk according to your ways and your statutes and the ramifications if we don't. Oh, but Lord, there is nothing healthier. And so, God, I pray that what we have at Iron City this morning are people who, humbled in the presence of God, will be worked through by the Spirit of God in the face of the Word of God. That, Lord, we might identify in our own lives the idolatry that is there and the selling out to other gods and trying to go our own ways, oh, Lord, that we would say more than our own ways, more than the happiness in this life, more than the contentment with the satisfaction, the attainment of all of our ambitions, that what we want, what we want is Christ, Christ, and Christ alone. I pray that, Father, this morning we would not be 
neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. But instead, O oh Father, that we would say we want to be red hot for the name of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. Preachers can't convict souls. Only the Spirit can. And I ask, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would do just that. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I think every so often you just need to stop for, your, for a second and ask yourself honestly, how badly do you really want God? How badly do you really want God? Do you want God more than you want an easy life? Do you want God more than you want the acceptance of your coworkers, peers, and neighbors? Do you want God more than you want a husband or a family or a promotion or a scholarship or a graduate degree? Honestly, in the face of God, in the darkness, in the, in the back corners of your own heart, in the recesses of your own mind, truthfully, 100%, knowing God is your witness, how badly do you want him? Jesus tells us in the gospel that our love for God is to be so intense. Our love for God is to be so white hot that even the love that we have for our moms and our dads and our husbands and our wives and our children should look like hatred in comparison. Of course, we're not supposed to hate those people. We're supposed to love them intently. The call is not to a lesser love of those core relationships in our life. It is called to a supreme love for Christ, for the kingdom that causes everything else to pale in comparison. And so there's a second question that we can ask that coordinates with the first. There's a second question that we can ask that I think helps shed some light on really how badly you actually do want God. And that is how seriously do you deal with your sin? How seriously do you deal with your sin? Do you want to know how badly you want God? You will know by how seriously you deal, not with the sin that's in our land, not with the sin that's on the news, not with the sin that's on Facebook, but the sin that resides within your own heart and your own life. That is, do you hate your sin or do you secret, secretly love it? Do you confess your sin or do you cover it up? Do you seek to prevent sin in your life? Or quite on the contrary, do you go after it with everything that you've got? John Owen, the Puritan writer, famously wrote one time, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I want you to think about the sin in your own life. Do you feel the weight of its gravity and the, and the potency of its lash and the venom that it injects into your life to poison your heart and to put your soul to death? Are you serious about putting sin to death in your life because of how badly you want God? I think it would be a fair summary to look back at the chapter and the prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple last week in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And to summarize that as saying that Solomon is praying to desperately keep hold of the presence of God among the people of God. That what Solomon is praying for is that God's presence would sustain and maintain among his people. That his blessing would sustain and maintain among his people. And so what we have in the response here of God to that prayer from Solomon is God saying and asking those same two questions that we've asked ourselves this morning. Solomon, are you serious in what you're praying? Do you really want my presence above all other things? How badly do you want me with you? 
then how seriously will you deal with your sin? How seriously will you deal with sin in your heart, in your life? How seriously will you face down sin and repent on behalf of the people? How seriously will you call all of Israel to look in the eye and look in the depths of their own heart and repent and come back to me? And so what I think what we have God presenting here to Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is I think we have him presenting two different paths that we can take when we come to the realization of his sin. He calls it a house of sacrifice. And so we know that from the beginning, there is an assumption that God's people are going to need to repent. There is an assumption by God because sacrifices are for the purpose of the confession of sin and the atonement of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so we know from the beginning, it is in the mind of God that the people of God will need restoration. And so he says, when you come to the realization and the recognition of your sin... How will you respond? How will you respond? There are two different ways that this can go, and there are two different paths that you can take. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this passage that is so familiar to us that it's easy for us to misinterpret it, and it's easy for us to misapply it. And I want us to quickly look at these two different paths, and then I want to circle back and apply it in three different realms. And I want to focus a lot of my energy on this application because I think The passage itself is fairly straightforward in what it's calling us to do, but fairly difficult for us to apply it in the context of the New Covenant Church and in the 21st century. That we, this is typically where we get off the rails. So I'm going to walk us through these two paths, and then I'm going to show and attempt to show you how this is significant for us today. The first path that I want us to see is that the that we must, uh, if we want to have restoration, the path to restoration is repentance. Repentance to restoration. Now, if you look at verse 14 there, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If you were to turn this week to, to White Plains High School's uh, yearbook, you would probably, if they have a quote or if they have a, a favorite verse listed, that's one that's going to come up a lot. It's one that you see on social media quite a lot. It's an extremely common verse, one that, again, that is so common that perhaps we even drown it out with, uh, with white, as white noise when we hear it. So, so what's going on here? I think it's, first of all, I, and I'm going to circle back to this later on, I want you to understand this is not a verse about the United States of America. It, it, it's not that it doesn't offer hope. I'm going to circle back to that. But primarily and preeminently, this is not a verse intended to apply to the United States of America. This is not an American verse. This is a verse from God to his people. From God to his people. And to be an American is not necessarily to be his people. This is an important realization if you're going to rightly interpret and understand this verse. That what we have here in this response from God to Solomon is God teaching Solomon and through Solomon all of Israel and now through Solomon to all of Israel to all of us what repentance is supposed to actually look like. The shape of what repentance means. And so you can see there in verse 14 if my people who are called by my name humble themselves pray and seek my face and then Turn. The word turn there, it means repent, quite literally. It's the exact same word. Sometimes it's translated turn, sometimes it's translated repent. I actually like turn there because turn gives you the visual of what he's calling for, doesn't it? And so what you can see is that the first step down this path is to turn toward God humbly. To turn toward God 
humbly. I think it's important, you'll notice that are all these ands, right? All these conjunctions. And so if this was a formula, the way we would understand these ands is as plus signs, right? If humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We can add that one in there too. In, in other words, I think what God is teaching Solomon is that repentance requires all three of these components. That you, if, if you leave out one of the ands, one of the plus signs, you lose the entire equation. That if you have less than humility, prayer, seeking the face of God, and then turning from your wicked ways, if you are missing any one of those three, you have not in fact repented. And you in fact lose the, the good promise on the backside of the equation. That we can think of these as three as a triangle of repentance. That on one side of the triangle, there is humility. On the other side of the, of the triangle, there is praying and seeking the face of God. And on the other side of the triangle, there is then turning from your wicked ways. Because all of these dovetail together, all of them complement one another, and all of them lead to each other. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you are a humble person, then you recognize you don't have what it takes in and of yourself. You recognize that you're not smarter than you are, and you're not stronger than you are, and you're not more able than you are, and you aren't more righteous than you are. And so you come to the end of yourself quite quickly when you're humble. So what do people who come to the end of themselves do? They pray. They seek the face of God. If you have no prayer in your life, it is because you have an abundance of pride in your life. Pride is the antithesis of prayer. Humble people pray. And humble people know that they often go astray and they often take wrong turns. And so humble people are quick to turn and repent and to redirect their routes according to the paths of Christ when they identify them in, the, in his word. The same could be said. We could start with repentance and work backwards and say the same thing. If you are repentant, then what does that mean? To be repentant, it means that you recognize that you have fallen far short of this glory of God. You have been humbled in reality. And being humbled in reality, what will you do? You will repent. You will cry out. You will pray. You will seek the face of God. You will do an about face in your life. And so we see that each of these are three sides of a triangle. And if you take away one side, you lose the whole triangle. Each of them are pluses in an equation. And if you lose a single one, you lose the entirety of the equation. It's vital that we see this. That repentance begins, repentance begins with recognizing who we are and what we've done in light of who God is and what he requires. Repentance recognizes who I am and what I've done, the severity of my sin in light of the greatness, the transcendence, the eminence, the holiness of God and what he requires, which is holiness none the same. The only thing that holiness can in fact require. And so when you come to that realization, there's only two responses. One response to the realization of who I am and what I've done in light of who God is and, and what he requires is to call, run back to God and to throw yourself upon his mercy and to plead with him for his forgiveness and to cast yourself on the hope of his grace. The other response, the more common response, is to run harder, to, to double down on your efforts to try to find wherewithal within yourself to be smarter, to be better, to be more moral, to be more ethical, to be more deliberate, to be more disciplined, to, to go deeper, to find pleasures in all the places that you've been seeking pleasures. That is, one path is to humble yourself, seek the face of God, and turn away from your wicked ways. And the other one is to just keep on 
going. One of them is faith in the mercy of God, salvation. The other is faith in yourself, trust in yourself. So there's a very real question in this first path in which you have to come to grips, which we must have to come to grips, which he was calling Israel to come to grips with. Who do you trust? Do you trust the mercies of God or do you trust the machinations of man? No, turn toward God humbly. Then secondly, he says, receive from God mercifully. So there's a, a, an equals in this equation that if you humble yourself, if you pray and seek the face of God, if you turn from your wicked ways, then, then, this is the equal sign here, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. That there is the, the reception from the people of God that he has brought it to their attention that he might draw them into his mercy. And when they respond to his mercy, then what God says is I will give you the restoration of my blessing. I will pardon and forgive your sin by my grace and I will heal your land what you do not deserve by my mercy. That if you will place your faith and your confidence not in your ability to do better, not in your ability to find more gods, not in your ability to search out happiness and contentment in other places, if you will turn from your ways and find the fullness of your hope in me, then what you can bank on is you will experience my grace through forgiveness, my mercy through healing. You will know these realities. There's a sense here, and the way that I have this pictured is the father calling Solomon, the representative of his people close, like a son calls his, his uh, a father calls his son. Many of you have had this same conversation. And the father pulls his son close and he says, son, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you do, no matter how, how badly you mess up, no matter how big you blow it, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me. Because if you come to me, I tell you I will stand with you. And if you come to me, I promise you and give you my assurance that we will overcome this together. But son, if you keep going, if you hide it from me, you're going to have two different problems to deal with. So we have here God the Father drawing his people close to them and saying, when you blow it and you will blow it, this is a house of sacrifice. There is an assumption of your sin. Choose to turn back and come to me because not only will we overcome it together, I will overcome it on your behalf. I will overcome it on your behalf and I will seek to restore all that you have lost. No matter how big you blow it, no matter how, how deep in the world you go, no matter how, how much you love all the things that you're, if you will turn and come back to me, I will restore you. This is the path of repentance. Now there's a sidebar that I think is important for us to consider and it's um, that we need to know what's conditional in this promise and what's unconditional in this promise. I, and I'm going to circle back to this. This is really key to the realms of application that we're going to circle back to later on. And it's really key, I think, to understand why it's being talked about here in Second Chronicles. Remember, 500 years after this was would have initially taken place, once the people of God have been returned back from Babylon, the temple has been flattened, the, uh, the throne of David has been abdicated, they're under Persian occupation. And he says, for now... I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So there is a for now part of this promise. That is something temporal, something contingent, something conditional. 
And there is a for always component to this promise. Something that is dependent not upon the faithfulness of man, not upon their obedience to the law, not upon their upkeeping of the statutes, but upon the goodness, grace, mercy, and love of God alone. That God is going to, to promise to them unconditionally, without contingency, that if you are my people, this is assured of you. Now this is important for us. Because so often we take the promises of God and we misunderstand the parts of those promises that are conditional and the parts of those promises that are unconditional. And so I want you to imagine you have those post-exilic Jews coming back and Israel, Jerusalem, is shambles compared to what it was 500 years when they left. The, the house of God has been flattened and you can imagine them going into their minds and saying, God, did you not promise that this house would stand forever? God, did you not promise that your presence, that this house was going to be a permanent dwelling of your presence as an assurance of your promises and your goodness to your people? And yet, it's been raised flat. God, you said that there would be someone, a son of David, that would sit upon the throne of David forever. But right now, when these post-exilic Jews come, there is no son of David sitting upon the throne of David. They are occupied by the Persians. They have come out of captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So there's this real thought. God, have you, have you not kept your word? God, have you not kept your promise? And so they're rehearsing and they're going back and they're rehashing what God actually said. And there was a for now component to the promise. A conditional, contingent part to this promise. That for now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. That there is this for now person that so long as you abide in me, so long as you are committed to me, so long as when you said you turn back to me, this temple will stand as a marker of my goodness among your people. But if you turn away, if you go your own way and love your own gods and do your own things, this house can and has been flattened. But the hope, the hope for those post-exilic Jews was that there was still a for always component to this promise. That my eyes and my heart will always be with my people. My eyes and my heart will hear you. If this house does not exist, if you have to go to a temple of lesser glory, and even if that temple is once again flattened, and you have to construct it two, three, four, five times, if you are living in Babylon or you are living in Jerusalem, if you are occupied by the Persians, or if there is a son of David who is sitting upon the throne, what you can be certain of is that you have my eyes and you have my heart. And if you will, who are my people, who are called by my name, humble yourselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways, what you can be certain of is that I will forgive you and I will heal your land. That's path one. Repentance to restoration. Path two is defiance to destruction. Defiance to destruction. You, you begin to see path two really uh, in verse 19. He says, but if you turn aside. So you can see, this is the other path. If you don't humble yourselves, if you don't pray and seek my face, if you don't turn from your wicked way, if instead you turn aside and forsake or abandon my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you. There, so we have another equation, we have another equals, we have another set of consequences that come about. And so what he's wanting to say is that along path two, this is how you'll know you're on there. You go your own way. You go your own. When it talks about turning aside, this is a turn that has already been made. 
This is the turn that they had made made initially. This is the turn away from the ways of God, away from the statutes of God, away from the call and the law of God, that they might go and do whatever seemed wise in their own eyes, whatever felt good, whatever seemed right, whatever was pleasurable, whatever they saw in Babylon that they might enjoy, whatever was happening in Israel leading up to the captivity in Babylon, is to go your own way and to do your own thing. And so that lets us know that the only thing that you have to do to be on path two is to not choose path one. The only thing that you have to do to remain, to be on path two is to remain on the course that you're on when God brings an awareness of your sin. Now that's, that's important here. That's important here. And you need to listen up. If right now you were aware of sin in your life that you were planning to return to this afternoon or you're planning to return to this week and God has brought this to your mind, you need to zero in because this is the word that is for you. Both paths anticipate people who are aware of the devastation and gravity of their sin. Both of them. The difference is not the awareness of sin. The difference is the response to that awareness. That what you have, the people on path to, they are just as aware that they have sinned against God. They are the Titanic bearing down all of the other ships calling in saying, iceberg ahead, iceberg ahead. And yet they say, we will continue on full steam. They are on the path, they're on, they're going the way they want to go. And frankly, they aren't going to change because it's the way they've chosen. It's the decision they've made. It's what they ultimately want, which leads to the second uh, the second part of this of path two is that you don't just go your own way. You love your own God. Why would anybody like we read this and we zoom out and we think why would anybody knowing what God has said choose path two? Do you know why they choose path two? It's the same way Jesus teaches us of two paths: a narrow path and a and a wide path. He says the narrow path is hard, and the wide path that's the path that so many are on. That's the path that is convenient and easy. The reason that you choose the wide path, the reason that you choose path two, when you become aware of your sin, is because you love it. It's because you love it. I, I get this from the second part of verse nineteen when he says, "And go and serve other gods and worship them." Worship. Serve them. Worship them. Why would they serve and worship them? Because they love them. Because they love them. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's, it bears repeating because it is so prevalent in our own lives. Why is it they were always choosing to worship other gods when it, the preeminent command, the law that encompasses every other law, is that they would love only their God and be committed only to their God? Well, why do we? The reason is, is because they could go and they could cherry pick the gods that they wanted. They they could cherry pick the gods that would allow them to live the way that they wanted to live. To have what they wanted to have. The the God that offered them prosperity in the shape that they wanted to experience prosperity. The, The God that defined freedom and personal freedom in the way that they wanted to define personal freedom. And so they would choose all of these other gods. And by choosing all of these other gods, essentially what they were choosing was nothing more than themselves. They were constructing gods that looked like them, that wanted what they wanted, that would enable and justify them to do exactly what they intended and planned to do all along. And so God is saying to them that if you want to go your own way, and if you want to love your own gods, then you're going to forfeit my blessings. 
that we can reframe that famous verse from verse 14. It says, if my people who are called by my name continue going their own way and loving all of the other gods, then I will give them what they want. You understand why the house is so representative? That if they love all of these other gods, what God says is, I will flatten this house. I will take this house away. That way you can build a temple to the God that you actually love. That way you can be dependent upon the promises and the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the, and the, and the power of the God that you believe brings you greater prosperity and greater joy. That if you want all of the other gods and if you are content to continue down your own way and love who you are already loving, then I will remove my presence from among Israel and I will flatten this house so that you can ultimately have what you actually want. The greatest judgment given in all of the Bible is when God turns you over to your own desires. It's very reminiscent of the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, isn't it? Do you remember the story? The son goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I, I'd like to just go ahead and have my, my inheritance now. I, I don't, I'm not really into the whole family scene. I'm not really into working on the family estate and doing the family job. So, Dad, if you'll just go ahead and give me my portion of the fortune, I'll be on my way. Y'all never have to worry about me again. I'll never have to worry about you again. And whether it's good parenting or not, what does the father do? The father gives him the inheritance. And the son goes and he lives as, as wildly as he wants to live. And he sows his wild oats and does all the things that he wants to do. And lives in abject rebellion, absent from his father. And then there's one day. There's one day in which the fortune is gone and the, and the party has ended and the fun is gone and he's left there with nothing but the emptiness in his soul and the loneliness of his thoughts and he looks and he longs for the slop of the pigs and he thinks there's only one option that I have. I have one option and one option only it is to go and to throw myself onto the mercy of my benevolent father. That is what the father does in the life of his son is he lets his son go and get hungry again. He lets his, hung, his son become starved for his father's goodness and starved for his father's affection and starved for his father's blessing that he might return once more and experience the mercies of his father again. And that is exactly in the mind of God here among his people as he says, yes, I want you. I want you to come to the end of yourself and I want you to recognize that none of these gods can supply you or satisfy you or give you the, the protection or what you're looking for. And so if I have to flatten this house, if I have to remove my blessing from my people that you might starve again and long for my mercy, then that's the best thing that I could do for you. I wonder this morning, are you starving for the presence of God yet? Are you starving for the blessing of God in your life yet? This is relevant to you. This is relevant to you. And the question that's coming to bear in this passage is which path will you choose? Will you choose repentance to restoration or will you choose defiance to continue going your own way, loving your own, own, uh, your own gods that you ultimately will forfeit God's blessing? And that brings us to these three realms of application that I want us to be able to come and be able to, to lock in and see the significance of this passage and these paths in our life today. What is going on here and why does it matter exactly 
to us. Now, before we do that, there are some important questions that we need to ask. And I think these are especially important of this passage because we see it so misinterpreted and so misapplied so often on backs of t-shirts, on, uh, on social media, on yearbook posts, all of those things. I think the first question that we need to ask is, who are my people? Who are my people? It bears repeating, my people are not Americans. My, my people are not Euro colonists. European colonists, my people are not people that are middle class and try to live decent lives and raise good kids. Those are not my people. My people in this context is Israel, the old covenant people of God that God has promised to commit himself to. So if this this promise is going to carry forward, it is not going to carry forward to any of the, the pagan nations that are around. It's not going to carry forward to just any old country that we really like and we really prefer. It's not going to carry forward to a nation even as great is ours, and I do believe our nation is great, the greatest, perhaps, in the history of the world. It is not going to carry forward. It is going to carry forward to whom? The new covenant people of God, the new Israel, the greater Israel, the church, that when he's referring to my people, the thought that comes into our mind should not be Americans, and the thought that comes into our mind should not be middle class. The thought that should come to our minds is me, me, you, us. The church, and not just the church. We're not talking about the church that is visible, the church that is on the rolls, the church that are members. I'm talking about the invisible church, the church that is unseen. There are many people a part of the visible church that are not a part of the invisible church. I'm talking specifically about the people whose names are written in Lamb's Book of Life that are known by Christ himself. Not people that come to church regularly, not people that have been baptized once before, not, I'm talking about people who are captivated in their heart by the glories of God. Those are my people, my people. I think there's another difficulty here. What does he mean by, how can we understand heal their land? In the old covenant, God's people, Israel, were a geopolitical nation, and they were a country that had borders. And there was a land, and that land was representative of the promises of God and representative, representative of the presence of God there abiding with him. But in the new covenant, we are a nation, yes, but we are a nation that is collected from the nations. We are a nation that has been raised up from Africa and Asia and Australia and the United States of America and Canada and Mexico and South America. We are a nation that is scattered across the globe and is no longer determined by a geopolitical nation or a set of boundaries that surround us. We are instead determined by what has been written on our hearts, that we have been brought together as brothers and sisters, as co-heirs, as citizens of another kingdom, of citizens of another land. So that means that we have to understand the healing of land in a different way if we are to apply, and I do think it applies. So if we understand the, na- the, the place of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem, as indicative of the blessings of God and of the promises of God and of the presence of God, we have to carry that forward and think about what those realities now look like in the new covenant. How are we aware? Well, we have blessings too, don't we? We have the fullness of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit of of peace and love and kindness and gentleness and patience and goodness. We we have among us the the promise that that God is going to unite us together and bring us together. We have the abiding peace that surpasses all understanding. We have the, the, the fullness of the joy that is promised to us that if we will abide in Christ, his joy will abide in us to the full. We have all of these promises that are intended to mark us and to identify us as children of God, children of the promise. And so I think what we need to think of when we think about healing the land is not so much a geographical, geopolitical, 
political land with borders, but rather the promises that have been assured to us, secured by Christ when he was raised from the dead and then sent the Spirit for our good. Those markers of the kingdom on us that remind us that this isn't home. Those markers of the kingdom on us that carry forward and are going to carry us all the way until the return of Christ. Now, I think the third question that we need to wrestle with, and we're really going to see this more clearly as we get into these specific realms of application, is what parts of this promise are conditional and what parts are unconditional? What parts are contingent upon our faithfulness, our obedience, our pursuit of Christ, our humility, our repentance? And what part is unconditional? By the grace and the mercy of God. I'm going to use just one of the promises to hopefully show you what this looks like. The first realm of application that I want you to see is that Iron City isn't unconditional. Iron City, Baptist Church, I'm meaning this local body of believers is not unconditional. And what I mean by unconditional is I mean that we are not guaranteed to exist forever as a local church body. So very often I've heard it said, I've heard it said even this week of our denomination, and I'm going to get there here in just a minute. But when a church goes through a hard time or a church goes through a period of unfaithfulness and God begins to remove the blessing of that church and that church begins to unravel at the seams, that they will go to Matthew 16, 18, and they will say, but, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, I want to ask, is that actually how that promise should be applied? When he says to Peter, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is I will. This is a certainty. I'm going to do this. I'm going to build my church on this rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. They shall not win. They shall not be successful in their attacks over the people of God. Now, does that apply specifically to Iron City Baptist Church? Well, in a way, of course it does. But what he's talking about here is not the visible church, not the manifestation of the local church. And the local church is powerful and necessary and beautiful. But again, what he's talking about is the universal church, the invisible church. Not the people on the roll, the people in the Lamb's book of life. The people who are known by God and who know God. The people who are devoted to God and God is devoted to them. My people. My people. Let let me show you where I'm getting this. We're just going to look at two of the letters. There's seven letters written in the book of Revelation. And these are words from Christ to local churches. Local congregations just like Iron City Baptist Church. The first church I want to look at is what Jesus writes to the church at Thyatira. It says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate, that's a familiar word, isn't it? That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, my people, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. That's just going to shudder down our spine. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. She's going her own way. She's loving her own gods. And so she is forfeiting God's blessing. You see this carrying forward? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. It sounds so much like what he says, I will 
make this house of the Lord a proverb in the mouths of the other nations. And they will ask the question, what happened here? Why did God remove his presence and his blessing from among these people? So you need to understand what's happening at Thyatira. This is a local church who is proclaiming and singing songs and songs and spiritual songs. And they're baptizing and they're, they're taking of the Lord's Supper and they're opening God's word and supposedly reading all of it. But he says, I have this against you, that you are concerned with the, the sin outside of the church, but there is sin inside of the church. That the preeminent concern in the mind of Christ is not the sin in the culture. It's not that he's unconcerned with it. It's that it's not the preeminent concern. The preeminent concern of Christ is the sin that takes place among his people, within his church. That the concern here preeminently in the mind of Christ is not that there is sexual immorality in Rome. Of course there's sexual immorality in Rome. The concern in the mind of, God, of, of Christ is that there is sexual immorality in the church, inside the church, not outside the church. The concern is not that there is greed in America. Of course there's greed in America. It's that there is greed within the church. It's not that there's dishonesty among Congress. Of course there's dishonesty among Congress. That is not the preeminent concern of Christ. The preeminent concern of Christ is there is dishonesty within the church. There is deception within the church. There is duplicity within the church. And he is saying, I am giving you time to repent, but if you do not repent, if you continue in your own way, then I will make you a proverb and an example to all of the other local churches that they will look at what happened at Iron City Baptist Church and they will say, we best deal with our sin seriously if we want to enjoy the presence and the blessings of God unconditionally. Continues going. The church at Ephesus. This is the passage I preached to you on my candidating Sunday almost nine years ago. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love. Do you, did you used to love God more than you do right now? That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and what? And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That the besetting sin, I believe, of the 21st century church is that we have lost our love for Christ and we have become enamored and frustrated and annoyed by the sin that is in the world while we turn a blind eye to the sin that resides in me, in his people. And so I think we need to see and we need to deal with and wrestle with emphatically this morning that Iron City Baptist Church is not unconditionally promised to exist another day. Iron City Baptist Church is not, condition, is not unconditionally promised to exist another year. In fact, God may flatten this temple to the ground that we would be a proverb in the mouths of the other churches. The question facing us is which path will we choose? Which path will we choose? And it's a question between whether or not we will live and we will die. Will we deal intensely with the sin that is in our own hearts? Or will we continue to gripe about the sin that is out there? The sin that is out there is disgusting. The sin that is out there that is grotesque, but the grotesque, but the sin that is in me, oh, I am the chief of all sinners. I am the chief of all sinners. 
And so if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will restore to them through my forgiveness the joy of their congregation, the peace that abides within their spirit, the unity that exists among the church, the advancement of the gospel. Listen, Iron City, I think, I think it's really easy in the position that we're in to pat ourselves on the back and to continue going our own way and assuming that because we have more people in number that God's blessing is here and among us. That is not necessarily the case. In fact, there is a way that we can go our own way and we can become so enamored by being a growing church or being an exciting church or being a deep church or being a, a young church or being a family church or being this kind of church or that kind of church that we can forget that the call, the preeminent concern that is on our lives is not to be a growing church or an exciting church or a modern church or this church or a casual church or a young church or an old church or a deep church or a shallow church or a secret sensitive church or a missional church. The preeminent concern is that we would be a holy church, a pure church, so out to the glory of Christ himself. What will we choose? What will we choose? He is giving us time. God help us. God help us if we go our own way. Which brings me to my next realm of application that I want us to see, and that is that the Southern Baptist Convention isn't necessary. Iron City, we're not unconditional. But the Southern Baptist Convention is not necessary. So let's go back to that promise that we made, verses six, uh, Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Does that mean that the Southern Baptist Convention cannot be wiped from the earth? Does that mean that there is no way that God is going to remove the lampstand of the Southern Baptist Convention? My goodness, no. There is not a single promise to be found in the entirety of the Bible that is made to a denomination. There are no denominational promises made in the Bible. We have been a part of the Southern Baptist Convention primarily for two reasons. They have been largely, not universally, largely committed to the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And secondly... They have been committed to advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and raising up missionaries that God would call people to salvation and being a part of church. And you know that enthusiastically that I have been a supporter of that and participated in that and have been excited about that. But what we saw in the report that you've heard me allude to, maybe you've read some of it yourself, what we saw alluded to in the report uh, last week, last Sunday, when it was released, is that there is rot in this house. There is rot in this house. That there has become a pursuit after going after our own way, building our own empire that is more concerned with image and more concerned with giving and more concerned with litigation than we are with the spirit of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, can God use the Southern Baptist Convention to be a part of church and plants around the world and, and raising up disciples? After, Of course he can. But don't, let's not fool ourselves one second to believe that he needs it. He does not need it. And in fact, our own participation in it is at stake here. That what we must see among the Southern Baptist Convention, a, a, a convention which we must lead from the bottom up, it is not a hierarchy, it is a co cooperation of local churches that from the bottom up, a grassroots effort that can begin right here among us must be that we would get on our faces and repent before God, that we would not go after our own gods, the gods of image, the gods of, of success, the gods of influence, the gods of prominence, the gods of, of lobbying power in Washington, D.C., but rather, rather, rather that as a collection of churches, 
churches, our passion and enthusiasm would be that we are holy and pure and devoted until the glories of Christ and Christ alone and whatever else may come, may come. That we are not going to be a part of it if they continue down that path. But we will lead the effort if we're ready to have a full-throated repentance. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and turn to a new direction, then they can experience the power of me to plant churches, to build my church, a church, an invisible church, which the gates of hell will not prevail against. But I've given them time to repent. And if they don't repent, I'll give them over to themselves. There's two paths before us. I want to bring this home with the final realm of application. I want you to see that the United States of America needs a pure church. There is a way that this passage applies to the United States of America, but it is not given directly. We are the direct recipients of this call. We, the church, the ones who are written on the Lamb's Book of Life, who know God, the Spirit sealed, sealing the reality of Christ and the devotion to Christ on our, that, that's us. But guess where God sends us? He sends us among our fellow countrymen. He sends us within our society. The passage I read from the beginning, you are the salt of the earth. What is the purpose of the salt? It is to stop the rot. It is to stop the decay. You are the light of the world. What is the purpose of the light? The light comes in and illuminates the darkness so that it can see the realities of the glories of Christ high and lifted up. That is the hope for the United States is that we would repent. The hope for the United States is that the church would stop being so angry about all the sin that is out there until we come to grips with the sin that is in here. We should not call a bad thing good, and I'm not saying that we should turn a blind eye. We should do none of those things. But first, preeminently, we must deal with our own hearts. It brings us back to those two questions that we started with, right? How badly do we really want the presence of God? How badly do we want to experience revival in the life of the church? How badly do we want to see the preservation of our society? How seriously will we deal with our own sin? How seriously will we deal with our own sin? This morning, the, the choice is in front of us just like it was that day in Israel. Which path will you choose? Which path will we choose? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.